0: call to worship this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Beloved congregation of the Lord, I bid to you grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. We do thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you have made peace with us by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and have called us now into your Heavenly Throne Room to receive blessing, to celebrate your grace and mercy to us, and to be strengthened and encouraged by the ministry of the Word and the Sacrament. Help us this morning to approach your throne guided by sincerity and truth with the true knowledge and a hearty trust that we have indeed been washed forever from our sins and declared righteous because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Send your Holy Spirit, we pray, to fill our hearts with joy and all peace in believing and may you receive all the glory in the midst of your people this day in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let us now turn our attention to the Word of God. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of Acts chapter 2. This is, of course, the account of the great day of Pentecost when the Spirit was given in great measure to the Christian church. (laughs) Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, let us now give full attention to the word of God as it is read in our midst. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance and there were dwelling in jerusalem jews devout men from every nation under heaven and when this sound occurred the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, "Whatever could this mean?" Others mocking said, "They are full of new wine." But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, "Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words." for these are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day but this is what was spoken by the prophet joel and it shall come to pass in the last days says god that i will pour out my out of my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I I will show wonders in heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. (coughs) Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let us turn together again, beloved, in our Bibles to Psalm 133, one of the shortest psalms in that book, three verses only. Let us now lift up our hearts to heaven above, to God in heaven, and ask his blessing on the reading and hearing of his holy word. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. May God bless this reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, beloved of the Lord, as we prepare to come to receive the sacrament this morning, it's appropriate for us to focus our thoughts on the wonderful opportunity that is before us and how it testifies to the sweetness of the unity of that we all enjoy in Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, this sermon text, which I just read, does not speak directly of the table, but it does get to the heart of what the table, that is, the Lord's table, is about. And what does the psalmist say about an occasion like this one? He sings of the goodness and the sweetness of fellowship in the Lord and the unity of God's people. (coughs) Because you see, beloved, what is the table of the Lord, if not a table that celebrates our fellowship, our reconciliation, our unity in Christ. So this psalm, Psalm 133, is our song, a song that celebrates our sweet communion as God's people. The first words out of the psalmist's mouth are a loud exclamation, Behold! Behold, he says! An acclamation about the goodness, about the pleasantness of God's people living and worshiping together in unity. Now, you'll read commentators who will point out that this psalm can apply to many situations, to any occasion where God's people are brought together, be it a family in the home or to a relationship between students at a Christian school. But the context of this psalm is specifically one of worship. As God's people made the journey three times a year to Jerusalem and converged together to go up, to ascend the holy hill of the holy city, to present their offerings, to join in the festivities, to hear God's word read and preached. This is why it's labeled a song of ascents. It signals to us something. There are 15 such songs in the book of Psalms. And the Israelites would typically sing these psalms when they literally ascended the hill to Jerusalem three times a year to unite together to worship the Lord at the annual feast. So in this song of ascent, as God's people are coming up the mountain, Mount Zion to worship God, When David the psalmist speaks of the goodness and pleasantness of this unity, he is not using these terms casually, just in a spiritualized sort of way. He's not describing something that's mundane. He's describing something that's supremely good, that is extraordinarily wonderful and pleasant, the unity of God's people as they come together for worship. This is what moves him to write this psalm. We're invited to see this by the use of the word again, behold, the text literally commands us to see what a wonderful thing true spiritual unity is. And that's what we need to do when we come in for worship, isn't it? Every Sunday, we need to see with the eyes of faith, not see what our eyes see necessarily, but see by the eyes of faith what is happening there. God's people are being assembled to meet God and receive blessing from his hand. And when we do this, when we come together in such a way, that is what true spiritual unity is. And we today are reminded that the only way any of us can enjoy union and communion with each other as the people of God is through the union we have with that God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. When our Savior died on the cross for us and when He rose from the grave for us, He not only saved us from our sins, but He redeemed us, He bought us. He laid claim to us as his people. He eternally bound himself to us so that we are now flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. In another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul likens the unity between Christ and his church to that of a body where Christ is the head. And we as individual Christians are members of the body joined together to Him by faith through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we ourselves are also joined with each other by the same Spirit, so that we might live and worship and function as one people of God, united in heart, united by His Spirit. This is why we refer to ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, It's a way of verbally confirming that we have been literally joined together as one family through the finished work of our Savior. We have been adopted into God's family and can now call upon Him as our Father. it's for this reason that Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, as we read earlier, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So many marvelous things we can point out in in those verses that I just read. One of them being the the idea that we must always maintain humility toward one another and toward God. Because the fact is, as sinners, we rub each other the wrong way at times, don't we? That's why we have to be forbearing. That's why we need to be quick to forgive others. Because we do. Because we understand, realistically, we understand what life in a fallen world is like. Whether it's our neighbors, whether it's even our fellow Christians endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, something you've got to work at, something we're all called to work at, right? Not just something that just happens. Of course, we pray for this blessing, but we have to work at it, endeavoring to keep the unity, not something that we need to strive to attain, but to keep what God has given us, which is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And one thing I really want you to see here, beloved, is that the unity and oneness that God has given us, the oneness that he calls us to carefully maintain and enjoy as his people, is the very same oneness that God himself enjoys, that God himself possesses in himself as our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, this is the unity that Jesus prayed for shortly before he died. As we read in John 17, verse 20 and following, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would include us. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You realize this was Christ's prayer. This was his dying desire just before he was sent to the cross. That we, his people, his body on earth, his family on earth, would be one. For no greater reason than that our unity, our oneness, would be a reflection, would be a witness, an earthly analogy of the perfect union that exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity. You see how glorious this is? This doctrine of spiritual unity in Christ in other words, the unity of the brotherhood of believers on earth is to be a picture, a living illustration of the unity and oneness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we should join ourselves to false churches that pervert the Word of God and celebrate evil. This is not encouraging us to a false ecumenism that many in the world trumpet. Rather, we're to celebrate the organic spiritual unity we already enjoy with all who call on the name of Jesus Christ in true faith,
1: who confess
0: the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints, salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. All such believers, we are united spiritually with them through faith in Christ. And we're to celebrate that and maintain that, even if it's not an organizational unity. It is an organic spiritual unity that we enjoy with all true believers in Jesus Christ. God is pleased when we nurture that and preserve that and protect that unity. One day we will, of course, enjoy perfect unity and communion in heaven above, we will perfectly be one forever. But by the prayer and command of Christ Jesus, we understand that even here and even now, we already have that unity and oneness and are a witness to this, of this unity to the world. So that when people look at St. John's Church, whether you're worship or as you visit with each other as a church family, as you care for one another, as you bring meals to one another, as you mourn with one uh, one another over the loss of a loved one, whether you're praying for one another, encouraging one another, meeting together for Bible studies, whatever the context, so that as people see this, they would see something of the glory and the beauty of God in you, being operated in your midst. Jesus spoke of this blessed unity as one of the great witnesses of the Christian church. In John 13:35, we read, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And just to expand on that a bit, just as the three persons are united together in eternal love and unity, so also ought we to reflect that love and unity to a watching world that God truly is among us. That is what is at the heart of Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. This is what Jesus Christ wants for his people. This is his desire. This is his will for you and for me and for all of his believing people. That we would be one even as he is eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Does God rejoice at the sight of our unity? Is he pleased at the beauty and the pleasantness of our relationships with one another, whether across the aisle, down the pew, or with others who are in our families, believing members, or wherever it might be? Are we at peace with each other? That's one of the unspoken issues that dealt with here. Are we at peace with one another? Are we working together? I ask this, beloved, because one of the requirements of coming to worship and to the table this morning is that we be reconciled, that we be at peace. Jesus spoke of this. Leave your offering and go. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and make your offering. That whole principle of God wanting his people to be at peace with one another was demonstrated in that teaching of Christ. Peace with God, but also peace with one another. In fact, that's what got the Corinthians in trouble. They were not at peace with one another. They were warring with one another. Some were coming drunk. Some were hoarding the food to themselves. They were not caring for one another, not not discerning the body of Christ in their midst. And how serious a sin was that? Well, it caused God to actually take (coughs) the lives of some of them. He said some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have fallen asleep because of this sin That you have not sought to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is this a serious matter to God? You better believe it's a serious matter. Especially when we come to the table. This is God's will that we might know and experience in our heart, in our souls. Experientially, the blessedness of being at peace with God and with each other. Our peace with God is, of course, what God has done for us in Christ. He has justified us by faith. He has granted us His peace. We are at peace with Him. We have free access to the Father at all times. We must maintain that same peace with one another as a result. Forgiving each other. Being reconciled to each other. When these happen, God's favor, God's peace, and His blessing might rest upon us. This is how we should leave this place of worship, not just on communion Sundays, every Sunday. We should always come away from this place and go back home with the blessed assurance of God's Spirit that all is well with my soul. All is well between God and me as we celebrate in the gospel. And all is well between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. All is forgiven. All is reconciled. The guilt is gone I'm free from the tension and the suffocation of broken relationships. This is what God wants us to experience. This is what God is pleased with. This is what he desires for us. This is what he calls us to maintain in his body. Indeed, this is why God sent his son to die on the cross, so that you and I might know and experience here and now and forevermore this unity, this peace. We see this unity illustrated in a beautiful way in verses 2 and 3, where the psalmist provides rich word pictures, vivid imagery to illustrate not only what this unity is like, but also how and from where it is bestowed to us on earth. It comes from above. It comes from heaven, this unity, this blessing. Well, you notice the common theme of a downward movement (coughs) What the psalm says, a flowing down, a falling down, a waterfall effect, a pouring out from heaven above to earth below. Again, he says, it's like the precious soil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What's up with this oil going down Aaron's beard and dripping on his collar? You know, me, I'm just kind of OCD a little bit. I'm thinking, what a mess, right? (laughs) Oil coming down on his head. uh, What's up with that? Well, think of it this way. That image is of the ordination of Aaron as high priest of Israel who ministered on behalf of the people in the tabernacle of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, bringing the sacrifices of the people before the Lord. And by God's command, those who were ordained to the Aaronic priesthood were anointed with oil on their head, which then ran down on their face, on their beard, and on their collar. Just as David also received the anointing of of the prophet Samuel on his head, rolled down on his face and down on his beard, when he was anointed as king. Olive oil was poured on their heads. And no doubt the people of Israel had witnessed this sort of ceremony, this ordination. It would be interesting to ordain people that way today. we We don't do that today. We lay hands on today. We don't need to do the oil. But the people of Israel had witnessed this sort of thing. They had seen new priests being ordained in their worship. So they understood what David was referring to. They had seen the oil poured out on the head, how it flowed down on the beard, how it went down onto the collar of the priest's robe. That was a sign of the Lord's anointing, of the Lord's grace and peace and blessing flowing down, originating from heaven, falling down, as it were, from God, from heaven, upon his appointed servant here on earth. Awesome. The next image the psalmist brings to mind is that of the dew of Mount Hermon that descends on the dry lands below. Dew, of course, as you know, comes from the atmosphere, from moist air, from the clouds that descend from heaven and leave droplets of water on plants and leaves and grass. And the dew, I've learned, is especially heavy at high elevations in the Middle East. So the mountains and even tall trees can be drenched with dew, And Mount Hermon was like this. It reached up to heaven into the clouds and it was drenched by the dew and that dew was life to the plants below providing moisture. The dew of Mount Hermon provided life in an otherwise dry and arid climate where things would wither and die. Do you understand why the concluding words of the psalm, life forevermore? The giving of the dew on Mount Hermon was life for those who lived in that area for the plants, for the people, as the water gathered for them to enjoy in a very arid and desert climate. And so it is that God gives his spirit to us in this dark and evil world so that we can thrive spiritually in spite of our sufferings, in spite of the difficulties that we face in this life. What is David telling us then, beloved? is that unity and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is something we have received as a gift from on high. The spiritual, organic unity we enjoy as a church is God's gift to us, a gift from heaven above. Just as those who are born again are born from above, the Spirit descending upon the person, witnessed in baptism by the pouring of the water on the head. So also God has blessed this church and every true church with the gift of spiritual unity. A gift that comes down to us in a dry and sinful and evil place. Not something anybody can gin up. Not something that we just manufacture by a lot of happy feelings. It's, it's a unity that God creates in us and grants to us by nature of the fact that he has saved us by his grace and we now belong to him. And this is his gift to us. We are all branches in the vine who is Christ. We are all members of his body. And Christ who lives and reigns above has poured out upon us the very oil and dew of heaven. Oh, marvelous blessing. We are anointed by the Holy Spirit. We have been granted the spirit of life, the spirit of unity. At Pentecost in Acts 2, as we read earlier, the Spirit came down from heaven, falling down, flowing down like a waterfall, anointing the church below. And when the Spirit came upon the people, what was the result? What happened to the saints in Jerusalem? There was the presence of power. That is, it was seen in the rushing wind and the tongues of fire upon their heads. There was life, there was the conversion of thousands of souls at the preaching of the gospel. And there was unity, blessed unity among God's people who worshipped together and shared all things in common. The crowds in Jerusalem for Pentecost may have been brought together for a common purpose, but if you think about it, they were still divided. They spoke different languages and came from different nations and cities. The curse of Babel was a dividing force even among God's people. And no doubt that created a lot of chaos and confusion in Jerusalem as worshipers were together in very close quarters but couldn't understand each other. I mean, imagine St. John's Church having four or five different nationalities present at every single service with people speaking different languages in the Sunday school class Unable to understand one another, hopefully with interpreters present. But imagine that, the chaos that would happen as a result. Well, that gives you an idea of the situation that the faithful were facing in Jerusalem coming into the day of Pentecost. It was a great challenge. But what happened on Pentecost? When the Spirit was poured out, the curse of Babel was reversed, and suddenly the worshippers from the various nations heard The Galileans declaring the wonders of God in their own native tongues. And it startled them. Why did that happen? The Holy Spirit did that. The Holy Spirit reversed that curse. In that moment, in that time, on that day, the Holy Spirit supernaturally united the church in a way it had probably never experienced before. Interesting, too, they were confused. (laughs) the effect of the curse of Babel, the Tower of Babel, was to confuse the languages. And now what happens? The people here, they're all united with one language, and now they're confused. That's not the way things are in this cursed world. What else did the Spirit do? At the end of Acts 2, it records for us the blessed union and fellowship of the early church. We read in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to You want to know what a spirit-filled church is. We all want to be a spirit-filled church, right? Every church wants to be spirit-filled. Well, here's what the spirit-filled church in Jerusalem did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowshipping with one another, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You want a healthy, balanced, spirit-filled church. That's what you aim for. That's what you strive for. In verses 44 through 47 of Acts, it says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all people as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one another in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You want to know what that was? That wasn't uh, an endorsement of communism. Just say that, right? We understand this was all volunteer. This was the work of the Spirit. This was an organic work of God meant to us as a sign, really. I think it was a foretaste. Foretaste of heaven. Foretaste of heaven on earth. You realize that when the Lord comes, that's what's coming. New heavens and new earth. God descends upon the earth and will dwell with man forever. And the glory of God will fill the whole earth. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what Peter's hope was in. New heavens and new earth. 2 Peter chapter 3.13 This passage does not require us to sell all that we have and own all things in common to experience such a life. That's not required of us any more than it was required of all first century Christians Not even those in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, their voluntary sharing was certainly a witness to us, something to mimic. It was certainly emblematic of the profound love and unity of purpose that those Christians shared. And that kind of spiritual unity, Holy Spirit given unity, that kind of fellowship and communion is not a fairy tale. It's not something that only those in the early church could experience. No, we are called to read and understand what unity looks like. We're called to see this unity, to show this kind of love, to enjoy this fellowship and communion even today, right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Is there anything holding you back from this experience, beloved? Is pride holding you back? A refusal to forgive? Maybe you're struggling with assurance. You're you're doubting God's word. I'll tell you today, stop doubting God's word. Believe the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't don't engage in navel-gazing. Don't engage in that sort of, woe is me, am I really a Christian? Don't do that. Believe what God says. Your assurance is God's word to you announced in the gospel. This is your assurance. Do not come to the table because Do not hinder yourself from coming to the table because, well, I don't feel worthy enough. Come to the table to celebrate the worthiness that God has bestowed on you by his grace through the death of Christ on your behalf. This meal speaks of the the witness of your assurance that we have peace with God. Just as we hear it in the word preached, we also celebrate in the meal received. But do you have any reluctance to seek reconciliation? Let's face it. We're still living in a struggling with the flesh. Paul was eager to be delivered from this body of death at the resurrection. We all struggle and are plagued with such sins at times. Whatever it might be, though, whoever it is to blame, God commands us all to be reconciled so that we might leave this place of meeting today, go back to our daily lives drenched in His goodness, anointed by His grace, having tasted of the goodness and the loveliness of fellowship with Him and with one another. That experience of the gift of unity that God has poured out that fills our hearts with joy. So let's not waste this heavenly blessing. Let us praise God for it. Let us commit in our hearts to maintaining it in the way that the Holy Spirit commands us with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, what a glorious gift you have given to the Christian church the gift of spiritual unity, a unity that is based on the Holy Spirit being with us. He is with us, He is in us, He is in all of us who believe in the gospel. We thank you for this precious gift. We thank you for this precious unity that we enjoy. Even pictured now as we all come together as one body, as one family, to the Lord's table to celebrate that which unites us, that Jesus Christ died to reconcile us to you and to one another. May may, uh, our hearts be filled with grace, with thankfulness, with joy as we come to this table. Help us to eat with true faith and to celebrate our unity and oneness in Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus, listen to the words of the institution of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as a sacrament to be observed regularly by his church until he comes again. It is not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but a visible, holy, holy, Sign and seal of the once for all sacrifice of himself for our sins. It is visible in that we can see it with our eyes. It is holy in that it is is a meal set apart unlike any other meal we may take. And it is a sign that the bread and wine signify the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And it's also a seal of our salvation in that it holds forth the promise and the assurance of being forgiven of our sins. So as we partake of these elements, God is confirming to us that he is faithful to fulfill the promises of his covenant and now calls us to simply believe in what he has done for us and to show deeper gratitude for our salvation and renewed consecration in the way we live our lives. (coughs) When we come to the table together, we're also renewing our pledge to each other that we are his people, the members of his one body. As the scripture says, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Finally, the supper also anticipates the return of Jesus from heaven when he will come bodily to gather all his redeemed people for the glorious wedding feast that is to come. All of this is to come to our minds as we come to the table, that we might humbly resolve to deny ourselves, crucify whatever remains of sin, resist the devil, and follow Christ as we wait for his coming from heaven. As a minister of Christ, it is my duty, my solemn duty, to warn the uninstructed, to warn those who are unbaptized, those who have not repented of their sins, do not come to the table. We do not want you to partake unworthily because you do not properly discern the Lord's body. We do not want you to eat and drink judgment to yourselves. Even so, this warning is not designed to keep humble believers from receiving of the table, as if the supper were only for those who are completely free of sin. All of us who come are acknowledging, in fact, that we are sinners, that we struggle daily, that apart from Christ we have no hope in the world. We are confessing our continuing dependence for pardon and cleansing upon the perfect sacrifice of Christ at the cross. We are basing our hope of eternal life, not on our own righteousness, but on his perfect obedience and righteousness. And in all these things, we are humbly resolving to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow after him. Let us pray. Our merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, in this supper we remember the sorrowful death of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask you now to work in our hearts a growing trust in Jesus to save us completely from our sins. May our hearts be nourished and refreshed with Christ himself, who is our heavenly bread. We pray that we would no longer live in our sins, but we would rather hate them and put them to death. May Christ our Lord live in us so that we may partake of the new covenant, forever sealed by his death. Be pleased, O Lord, to bless these elements of the bread and wine, so that we may remember the passion and death of your dear Son, and may by faith be renewed in our fellowship with him and with each other, all to your glory and honor, as we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.